Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, the places, the stories at Cincinnati Museum Center that you may not know or may never have seen. Today, we're joined all the way from the mezzanine, Jill Bites, Manager of Reference and Research for the Cincinnati History Library and Archives, which for once, I wasn't the first one to admit it. You said whatever that means. What? <laughs> In in your words, in your day-to-day, what does that actually mean? So I think that manager of reference and research is just a fancy way of saying head librarian. I do all the things I would have done as a normal librarian, but I feel like I sound a lot more important. So you've got the baddest shush in the land. You betcha. As, as head... <laughs> a lot of people may not know that Cincinnati Museum Center, that Union Terminal is home to the Cincinnati History Library and Archives, which... We can fact check my history on this. Dates back to 1835? 1831. 1831. Okay, see. Um, So I do feel like we're one of the best kept secrets in the city. So trying to get the word out there part of why I'm on here. But yeah, the organization started collecting in 1831 and was the um, first real group in Ohio to start doing that. So we have items going back to the Northwest Territory and before because we were first. Somebody was you know, forward thinking enough to collect items like that. And and a lot of people would think, oh, this stuff should be in Columbus, right? Because that's the state capital, which was not the first state capital, but also not the first major city in Ohio either. We're, we're right here on the Ohio River, uh, which at that time period, you needed some sort of consistent transportation. River provided that. So when it comes to that era, um, in collecting that history and looking to an established um, location for that, Cincinnati was it. Right. We were the sixth largest city for a long time in the 19th century. That's so cool. And one of the um, largest settlements um, west of the Alleghenies. So. What's the difference between the Allegheny and Appalachian Mountains? Please don't, are, please don't ask me are that. Are <laughs> so, Someone let us know. It, are, I think... The Alleghenies are further north, right? Are the Alleghenies part of the Appalachian Mountains? I don't know. I think uh, they go in there with those mountains up in New York, but I don't really know. We just know, we just know we're west of the mountains. And, right. And that's what matters It's important today. to distinguish us from New York by saying, west of the Alleghenies. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's all right. That's so we can still be the best at, at something, but not, you know, have to to deal with the long history of the East Coast. Correct. On some of those things. So, who uses the library? I mean, is it is it more of a a collection space or is it an active library? It, it is an active research library. We have tons of books, but you can't check them out. You have to use them on site. A lot of our collection is housed um, in a different building, but researchers contact us in advance, and then they can. we have the items waiting for them. Primarily, we get a lot of students, graduate students. We get a lot of writers, primarily nonfiction, but some fiction. And we get just some local history buffs. We've had the man who runs Spring in Our Steps for Cincinnati, which is about alleys and stairways in Cincinnati and preserving them. And and, um, he's in every week. That's awesome. Um, We have a gentleman writing the history of Westwood. He's in every week. Um, But then on Monday, we had a group of middle schoolers from Loveland come in. And we're starting to try to do more outreach to younger students because I feel like a lot of times history is what's missing in 
you know, school right now because there's so many other things that they need to learn. And so it was it was pretty fun. They um, they came in and they have so many different interests. And just there was one young man who said, do you have anything with presidents? So I, you know, broke out the big guns and got the land grants that had been signed by Washington and Jefferson and Madison. And, you know, just this boy, he was like 12 and his face just lit up. And he was like, really? Is this fake? And no, it's not. <laughs> that That's what's so cool about it, because history is what's missing uh, for for a lot of for a lot of people in, I mean, I was a history major and I would always talk to people who were older than me and they'd say, oh, I really wish I would have paid more attention to history when I was in school. It seems to be something that often people come to later in life to have an appreciation for. Um, but seeing primary documents, seeing George Washington's signature live and in person is a really special experience. I mean, people go all the way, they go to Paris, they go to Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, everyone knows what the Mona Lisa looks like. You, everyone's mm-hmm. seen a picture of it, but to see it in person is a completely different experience. And it's the same with with these documents of these, you know, larger than life figures from American history as well. Exactly. We have some newspapers starting in the 1790s. And there was one day somebody was in there and just kind of said, you know, what are some of the oldest things you have? So I pull out these bound newspapers, just flip them open. And there in 1804, it says, Burr has shot Hamilton, Hamilton not expected to survive. And of course, the news was three to four weeks late, because it took a while for it to get here. And we all know how that ended. But, you know, just especially when you can mash that with pop culture, with a primary document there, it's kind of neat. Yeah, because people recognize the name. And right. and. See, before before the musical Hamilton, most of us learned about the, the Hamilton Burr duel from the Got Milk commercial. The milk commercial, yeah. yep. <laughs> and, um, which, fun fact that everyone's going to love, that commercial was directed by Michael Bay. Really? I think. Now, Transformers guy, right? Yeah, Transformers yeah, guy. But okay. he was originally a music video director. <laughs> That's why... Bad Boys and Transforms and everything else just look like extended music videos. But back to Hamilton and Burr and into Got Milk, um, <laughs> which this podcast is not sponsored by Big Milk. It's just that's an organic thing that came up. When students come in, what are they? Are, are they just kind of touring the library? Or are they learning about primary sources and how to use primary sources? So it's it's a combination. So um, Clark Montessori comes in every other year. And does neighborhood reports. Oh, cool. Um, and so that is learning how to do research in a different environment and not using just the Internet. And then so this this class on Monday, they had been at the History Museum and they just came down to talk about like what they found interesting at the History Museum. And again, how to maybe find primary sources. They are going to do reports on things in their neighborhood and they're from Loveland. And so we had like this great old map of when the railroad went through Loveland and it's the center of town. And it was great. We pulled it out and the kids were like, look, that's where Paxton's is. That's where so-and-so is. And that one kid was like, my house is on this street. And, you know, it's a 150 year old map. And so I think it sort of brings it to light. And then we could sort of explain to them the difference between primary and secondary and what an archive has to offer. When I was in college, we had a book like a a workbook essentially of primary sources and they were all just reprinted but 
collected in there to work from. And primary sources are, are very cool because the the language in it doesn't change, mm-hmm. whether it's online, reprinted, or in person. And now everyone's doing research online. It, it's right. You can find scans of all these historic documents and, and all these things, but... Number one, that scan has to come from somewhere. So someone has to have that document. And there's just this power of seeing things in person and seeing them for yourself. And I think as a person who loves history, seeing them in their kind of their native state, like what you you want to look at the other aspects of what's what are the edges of it? What you know, is there any printing um, that gets left out of a scam because it's not part of the map, but has some meaning. Everyone's seen National Treasure, so now everyone <laughs> wants to know what's on the back of documents, right. which is, a, I mean, it is a thing. There, It's probably more interesting to people like you what's written right. on the back, uh, because a lot of times it's just no collections notation. Um, it's not any big secret, but seeing these things in person, it can be a, a transformative experience for people. Right. And sometimes, you know, because this organization has been collecting for almost 200 years, there are things that are in the collection that have been cataloged and no one's thought of for however long. So sort of two things. There's a book that came out earlier this year called The Madman's Will, and it was about the people that had been enslaved by Randolph in Virginia. On his, upon his death, he, he freed them. And then there was a lot going back and forth with the family. But when they left the plantation, they came through Ohio to go up up north, because someone in Ohio gave them land. When the author was here, he said, what do you have on this, on this topic? So he looked up, I said, oh, that's interesting. In a different collection, there was a sketch of them in someone's sketchbook. So he pulled the sketchbook out, and there's this beautiful drawing of these freed individuals going through Ohio, and he could actually recognize them from the descriptions he had read, he could recognize them in the drawing. No kidding. And so that's the cover of his book, actually. That's very cool. Yeah. And the other thing that's been happening um, over the past few years is there are some collections where something will will say marriage contract in the finding aid, which is what you see in the catalog, which you see online. It just says marriage contract. When you get into the marriage contract, it is a woman who's marrying someone and she's signing over ownership of all of her enslaved individuals. And it has a list of their names, their um, relationships, their ages. But if you just looked at the finding aid, you'd have no idea that all this information is there. And that's happened a few times where researchers come up and they're like, look at this. And so Christine, our archivist, is changing things in the finding aid as we go. But I think working in archives, it's a it's a constant evolution of information because... Maybe when it was cataloged in 1870, no one was too worried about it. And now it's important. But it's it's a world of rabbit holes. Exactly. That you, you're looking for one thing you, and you see something else. And so every now and then you'll hear a researcher or a writer say, I, I set out to write this book. But when I got into it, it led me to the book that you're reading now mm-hmm. that, that can be completely different. And librarians are so important because you've seen these things and you know the tricks you know what's in certain documents you know stuff that you've stumbled on how do you not how do you go about your day-to-day how do you go about (laughs) your job and not just get sidetracked and and say oh my gosh this thing is fascinating oh i am constantly sidetracked um that's my favorite part of my job (laughs) 
so um, I actually wanted to work here because I, I got so sidetracked. I used to work um, in the Clifton Library, which is in Boss Cox's old house. If you don't know who he is, he was the political boss of Cincinnati, late 19th, early 20th century. And I would come down here to do research on the house, which was a Hannaford house, and also Boss Cox, because supposedly he haunted the house and many things. I never saw any evidence of that. But um, I, I would come down here over and over, and every time, even though there wasn't much about um, Cox, but there was a there's stuff about the house and a little bit about his wife, and I come down and say, "Are you hiring? Are you hiring? Are you hiring? Or never hiring?" <laughs> and then finally, one day, <laughs> there it was. Um, and so, you know, you just could tell me these rabbit holes, and I I grabbed this. So this is Nicholas Longworth. There were there were three Nicholas Longworths. Um, this is Nicholas Longworth III. The Longworths, Nicholas Longworth was one of the richest men in the country in the early 19th century. The uh, the furniture Longworth um, or different? No, he um, he was an attorney and a land speculator, and he had a that's huge money is. a huge vineyard on Mount Adams called oh, the wow. Garden of Eden. So that's okay. what Mount Adams was. Um, and his wine was famous. Longworth wrote a poem about it. Big deal. But his grandson. Nicholas Longworth, the third, he married Alice Roosevelt and was the Speaker of the House in the early 20th century. But we have this beautiful little book that is from 1884 where he wrote a story and plays and illustrated it, and it has maps. This is amazing. And knights and horses, and it's just... Do we know how old he was when he did this? So it's dated in the catalog as 1884, and he was born in 1869, so 13, 14, I yeah. guess. But, I mean, the the drawings are, are pretty good, and there's mermaids, dragons. A color dragon, too. It, there's yeah. A lot of it's just black ink, but you got some color yeah. dragons. This yeah. It looks like a, a normal composition book that people would get Absolutely. today. You know, this black cover, little little speckles on it. Uh, and then unlined pages that are just scrawled in in black ink, but the the binding on it. I did his math in the back. Was he good at math? Should we? I check don't know. His I work? didn't check his math because Is anyone I'm, in this room I'm a librarian, so I don't have to do math. <laughs> the only decimals you're concerned about are Dewey decimals. <laughs> well played. These are just things that you that you find. Right. What, what's the most interesting thing that you've found in our library collection? Oh my gosh. So I think that everybody who works in the in a library archive has kind of their pet. And I tend to be pretty wonky and political. And so we have some letters between Teddy Roosevelt and his daughter Alice, who was married to Nicholas, and um, also between Nicholas. And they're not official presidential letters. They're kind of gossipy and funny. And I just, I don't know, they make my heart happy. The whole process of, of collections and preservation is so fascinating. How do you decide what you take, what you keep, what's worthwhile, what's not? And, and you said these are gossipy letters. And so for a lot of people, you may say, well, this didn't impact local history. This didn't impact history. This didn't leave a mark. But it gives you insight into a person who then did go make those decisions. Right. And I mean, and Alice lived here. So there's some crossover there. There's some discussion of Kentucky politics and some Cincinnati politics. And so plus he was a president. So they're relevant. Um, I know the collection is so huge that now it is the archivists and the the people in collections really take a long time to decide what, what belongs here and what doesn't. Because, you know, we'd love to take in everything, but 
There's another collection. It's the Blinn family collection. And they're a family that kept their letters from the 1700s to like the 1950s. And they're a normal family. But when you read the letters, there's discussion. I mean, they're local, but there's discussion of abolition. There's discussion of women's suffrage. There's discussion of the Civil War. I mean, it's just fascinating because it's just the day-to-day existence of people throughout all these periods of time. I think it's a really important collection. It's a huge collection. But, yeah, I think that some of it's, you can look at the presidents and go, wow. But some of it's just, oh, you can look at this. Here's this normal person. That, and now just their day-to-day things they were talking about is important. And I think it shows that, you know, all of us have a viewpoint that could be can be important or for people in the future to look back and see. Not that anybody writes letters anymore, but... <laughs> I want to come back to that, but those personal aspects are... That's the flavor on it. That's the spice. That's what, when you take a history class in, in school at any level, you're talking about big, right. big movements, big, you know, big impact. But, you know, the, the Great Depression, the Civil War, um, all these monumentous events in history impacted individuals. Mm-hmm. It, it's very easy to see... Oh, from 1861 to 1865, the Civil War is all anyone ever talked about. It was front of mind all the time. But people were also going about their lives and and falling in love, having arguments, trying to settle debts, doing all this stuff in the background of this. Mm -hmm. And that is an important thing to remember. So it's not just the speeches and the letters that Lincoln writes and other politicians write. It's how everyday citizens are interpreting that and viewing that. That paints that full picture. Right. It's, it shows you what life was actually like, either if you weren't a soldier on the battlefield, right? especially if you weren't a soldier on the battlefield. As you said, people aren't writing letters anymore. So how do you think that changes going forward? There's, is it going to be, is there going to be a collection of SIM cards in the future <laughs> where someone's like, oh, I want all of Barack Obama's text messages. He sent like a hundred years from now, are we going to want... People's text messages, because I can tell you, if they get my text messages, it's going to be a lot between my wife and I saying, what do you want for dinner tonight? I don't know. I picked last night. It's your turn. Yeah, those are mine, too. They're very exciting for everyone. (laughs) I don't know what we're looking at. I know a while back, the Library of Congress, I think, had decided they were going to keep all the tweets. But I'm not sure they're still doing that. You know, it's because where where are you going to do that? You're not going to have the space. And you are going to print out people's emails. I, I have no idea how it's going to work. The other the other thing we're running up against, which I'm not sure how it's going to affect the future, is generally people, let's say high school and younger, can't read cursive anymore. They're not trained to read cursive. And I hadn't realized, I, I'd heard it, but I hadn't realized it until we had a, a group and they're like, what is, I can't read this. And they were freshmen in college. And I was like, oh, hmm. So... I'm not sure what to, how to handle that. <laughs> my my daughter's in third grade now, and she thinks cursive is essentially just putting like a little loopy loop on different <laughs> yeah. letters. Uh, and I remember, I remember Christine Ingalls saying once uh, a handful of years ago that reading old handwriting is like a superpower because it is. You look at it, anyone's notes, and today, and people have such sloppy or really neat handwriting. I remember seeing. We have a letter, I think, from John Quincy Adams, and it is the neatest, like most precise writing ever. 
Um, but a lot of it is can be very sloppy, right. especially if it's um, personal notes, if it's a journal or if it's a diary or um, a note to a close friend or something versus an official document or letter that you're going to have sealed or stamped or something like that. So how do you figure out what you're reading sometimes when you're looking at some of this handwriting? It's definitely a learning curve. I have gotten so much better at it than I used to be. But um, there's some. So there are items in our collection written in German script, which I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's, no. It's English, but there, and there are some different letters. It's really hard to explain, and I can't read it. We have like a key, and I, I still can't do it. Um, I think Mikhail just call up Don Tolzman and say, I'm going to send you a picture of this. Please translate yeah. it. But um, I had somebody who wanted me to help him decipher this letter someone had written. And it's the same thing, almost like you figure out what this certain letter looks like and try to place it in context. This particular letter was about some weapon the guy had invented during the Civil War. And I said, okay, I can get these words, but I have no idea of the context of these. So together we figured out what he was saying because he knew the weaponry and I knew the rest of it. But the aforementioned Nicholas Longworth has some of the worst handwriting I've ever seen. And I have the handwriting of a third grader, so I totally understand that. But he would write letters to Hiram Powers. There's a whole collection of he and Hiram Powers, who was a sculptor living in Italy. And there is a letter where Hiram Powers writes to him, my wife and I, basically, my wife and I enjoy your letters because it gives us extra time to spend together. Like, we can't read your handwriting, so we spend extra time trying to (laughs) decipher it. It's pretty, some shade, you know. These are the humanizing moments that only come out through that. And there's a lot of moments, a lot of famous phrases or speeches or or moments that are retold by someone else. I was... I remember talking to him in this moment, and this is what he said, and this is how he acted. And so you're you're getting people being paraphrased a lot. But seeing letters like that from Hiram Powers, you have this humanizing moment right there, right in front of you, verbatim. If you're writing a story about Nicholas Longworth, that it fleshes him out as a person, as it, a character in that story. It does. Instead of just being like this incredibly wealthy man who owns everything in Cincinnati, it's like, well, he has bad handwriting. <laughs> Owen. Who's had who's had the best handwriting that you've seen? Oh my gosh. I don't know. There there's actually a lot of good handwriting out there because I think people took it very seriously. What else did you, what else did you do? You didn't you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, true. <laughs> you aren't watching TV. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you're a woman you were doing even you know, especially if you're a a woman of some means, you were really didn't have anything else to do. So <laughs> practice your penmanship. Yes. That, your piano playing. Who? This is a this is a good question. I'd be curious. Who on staff has the best handwriting that you've seen, and who has the worst? One of the librarians, Mickey, has really good handwriting. I could see that from Mickey. I probably have the worst handwriting. <laughs> I don't. I don't see a ton of it. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll see like different collections things, but I don't know. The worst hasn't has no me, but Mickey has beautiful handwriting, often in purple ink. But she is someone who seems very. Um, Every project that she that someone comes in and they're working on becomes her project. Like she is invested in it, mm-hmm. and she's ex- as excited about it as they are. Absolutely, and that, that's just the energy she brings to every single project. Absolutely. <laughs> so, when did you join the museum center? Um, it was four years in March. Okay, so, so 
just in time for really? COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a what a time to be alive. Yeah. You walk around the museum and everyone has their different their different moments, like their their different crucibles here. Um I think COVID nineteen was that for a lot of people in in every industry. And then you're going back, you had the restoration of Union Terminal, which can be broken up into different chunks and then it just go it goes on and on. And it's fun to see how people it's like generations. People like, oh, I'm of this generation of the museums and I'm of this generation. Uh, so it's always interesting to to hear when people start and to see like what that defining moment is for them that they've survived. And you survived a big <laughs> it was, one. We yeah, all it was did. probably COVID because we had the opening of the the reopening of the library in July and then March, you know, it all kind of went to hell. <laughs> Has COVID changed how people access the library or or choose to access the library? It really has. So um, two things. One which started pretty much immediately is um, we end up doing a lot more of the research for the researchers because they're remote. And secondly, we lost a fair amount of staff. So we're by appointment now because we don't have couriers to go back and forth. A lot of researchers are traveling again. So that's starting to kind of level out. I think we've had more visitors this year than in the last few years. It's been it's been a busy year, actually. It's really fun for me to see the different stories that our collections are used in. And there there will be a newspaper story in L.A. Uh, or or one in Minneapolis, Austin, Texas, like all over the country, all over the world. And I'm I'm like, why why am I getting flagged? for Cincinnati Museum Center for, for an article on this. And they used one of our, our images. They, they've they used us for research for the story and we're, uh, we're cited in it in that way. So the the breadth of researchers who use a library is really incredible. And where, where that shows up, a lot of our collections are regionally based, but have national and global impact. Yes. And some of that goes back to when we were this huge city with a lot of immigrants coming into it. But we've had some real researcher from Italy and from France in just this year, and they seem to be focused on Cincinnati as a border city during the Civil War, which is interesting because they're from France and yeah. Italy. Okay, um, So we get a lot of that. My very One of my first emails I got when I started working here at the library email account was someone from the Netherlands who had read a story about a sea monster in the Ohio River in the 1950s and wanted to know what we had about it. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, and in fact, there had been a storm and it was, they finally determined it was just big logs floating, trees floating down the river, but there were news stories about it. I was able to find newspaper articles about the sea monster in the Ohio River. What's funny about that is they they will write the news stories um, and then they'll they'll debunk it. They'll say, "Oh, well, this is yeah. really what it is." But then there's additional stories about the how excited everyone was about that it could monster. be it, or <laughs> you know, what if it was, and and all this other stuff. Yeah. That is, it's how does this person but, even but find that out? Exactly. I've lived here most of my life, and I'd never heard about the sea monsters in the Ohio River, and here he is over in the Netherlands, and did so. Did they name it? Did they get as far no, as naming it? No, it? it got debunked fairly quickly, but people were calling the police about it. I mean, just 
odd. Wow. That's... Yes, it was a slow news day. I, I mean, Nessie and Bigfoot. Um, what is the one in Lake Champlain just called Champ? I don't the, know about that one. It's oh. it's Champ. the North American version of, of, of Nessie. Of Nessie. Yeah, the Loch Ness Monster. Um, they, they carry so much power people people love that just get caught up in the in the lore of it when you got that request did you get the answer and keep reading or did you get the answer and move on there wasn't a lot out there there like i said there were some news stories so i got the answer you know sent the articles to the guy and moved on but it's been four years and it's still in my head (laughs) is that the strangest request thousands of emails later it's still in my head (laughs) You need to print that in and, and frame it somewhere. Is that the strangest request you've gotten or or what are some oh just odd requests that you've gotten and have we been able to fulfill them? That's probably the oddest. We sometimes we get you'll get these nebulous requests that you don't know how to answer about like various haunted places in the city and things like that. It's like, well, here's what you hear. I can't speak to whether or not they're actually haunted. Um, and then sometimes you'll get, um, we got one about, we've gotten them about circus performers, like specific circus performers, because the Robinson Circus was here. And sometimes they're very specific circus performers. There was one who was a woman who um, was an equestrian performer. So she stood on horses and rode around the ring and then she ended up. She died by falling out a window when she was not pretty. A, when she was pretty young, and it's so you get these horse, things where you're window. you're a little suspicious when things like that happen because she probably had good balance. Yeah. So, just things that make you think. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Has there? Have you had a request where you walk away and continue to research it that you that your interest is peaked that you want to learn more? That happens all the time. You were talking about how your... do you not go down rabbit holes? Yeah, right. I'm always down a rabbit hole. So there's a, someone who contacted us a few years ago about the twin sisters, which were cannons that Cincinnati sent to Texas um, in the 1830s. Um, the U.S. was not supposed to be sending weapons to Texas, but one of the Burnett's was down there. So Cincinnati was collecting money to get Texas away from Mexico. And um, I ended up so far down the rabbit hole, I found we have a collection with all sorts of stuff about um, Cincinnati during that era and they're in Texas and the Twin Sisters, but no one knows where these cannons got to. And everybody's trying to solve the mystery of where the oh, cannons really? went. Um, it's the same thing. And this one has gotten Mickey. It hasn't gotten me. There's supposedly a train under a hillside on the west side where the tunnel collapsed in on the train west side of Cincinnati. Really? People come in all the time looking for maps and things. And it feels like people would really know if it happened, but it's kind of this urban myth out there going on. Do they so. do they walk in with uh, miners' helmets and pickaxes <laughs> and say, do you have any maps of of railroad lines from the 1850s? And we, we do have maps. <laughs> and I will say that some the railroad people to, are very serious. <laughs> and... And they know things. I mean, I'll have conversations. And say, well, did you know? Something? I have no idea. <laughs> so. Railroad fans is a real brotherhood. It is um, railroad fandom has to be similar to to Star Wars fandom 
or something like that because it is it's like you never grow out of it you start you start young and if you're one of your parents or grandparents is into it there's a good chance that you're going to be into it also so yeah i I live in glendale and so the train goes right kind of on the edge of the square where the restaurants are and stuff you go up there and walk up there and there's always people sitting on the benches filming the trains watching the trains i and it's the same people over and over, so it feels like it would get boring, but I guess it doesn't. When I was a kid, <laughs> we used to put pennies on the railroad tracks, which I think might be illegal. I don't know, but I have a friend who does that with her niece, so I'm, I'll pretend I didn't hear it was illegal. I yeah, I was probably. Like, <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to get on the tracks and get them back. I was probably like yeah. nine or ten, so I, let's hope it's outside the statute of limitations. But it was. <laughs> You have this m- mild moment of fear that's like, what does it take to derail a train? Certainly not a penny. Yeah, I hope not. And then your friend's like, I put a quarter down this time. I'm like, no, a quarter's too thick. Are you a madman? Yeah. About how many books, papers do we have in the, the oh, library collections? Oh do you know? Um, we have 4,000 manuscript collections. I believe it's the, and that's the that's always small the... collections and 350 large collections um, books. I I've heard a number, but I can't think that that's right. But can... a manuscript collection is is not just one book. It could be so multiple. A manuscript is a a one of a kind thing. So it's going to be like family papers, business papers, letters, something like that. They're they're not books generally unless there's like a bound volume or a diary or something um and those are really the cream of the crop of the collection because they're things that nobody else has you talked about family papers do these mostly come in the collection from a member of the family because you get if you get family papers you're kind of peering into people's personal lives so what's the dynamic of why are we allowed to do that (laughs) why (laughs) if someone in the and someone in the family um you know, is the keeper of them and gives them to us. Sometimes it's people that just promise them, you know, that we'll give them to the, us while they're still alive or upon their death, we'll turn them over. And again, a lot of times it's people who had important positions or something like that. We have a lot of political papers, papers of the mayors of Cincinnati, Marion Spencer, those, you know, Ted Berry politicians. So those will be mostly professional papers. Then we had um, a family and who had donated their father's um, items. It was a small collection, but he was a Tuskegee Airman. Oh, wow. And he also was very involved in Lincoln Heights politics. And so that's a fairly new collection. And um, one of the sisters was in from out of town over the like, over the weekend. And so they came in just to kind of look at them and bring some more things. So we're constantly collecting. And I know that Christine and Sarah and Arabeth, the collections people, are really trying to build parts of the collections that have been sort of left behind or neglected. So, um, you know, African-Americans and immigrant communities and neighborhoods, which may have been sort of neglected in the collections process. Um, And so we're starting to get get some traction out there, and it's great. Women's women's history... um, we do have some, but a lot of times it's a little frustrating when you're in a collection and you can only find the person, you know, it's Mrs. John Smith or whatever, yeah. and you have to hunt for her actual name. So A lot of time it's histories of learning about old white men, and 
if that's what is making up a majority of collections, that's the only voice that comes through. And unless you're intentional about expanding collections, which goes into what's available, what's out there, and looking at institutions historically and what they were focused on, unless you're trying to be intentional about that and sometimes being creative about it, that it's it may not take the same form until those primary sources are collected um, or uncovered or, or really dove into, those voices from the past can't come out. Exactly. And some of that is like we was saying before, is just finding things already in the collection that we didn't realize were there because of maybe of how they were cataloged. The other thing is so we have a new fellowship called the Emerging Scholars Fellowship that's been um, funded by a gentleman and a researcher, a non-traditional um, researcher. So maybe someone who is a professor but not on tenure track, um, something like that. So we our first one started yesterday, and she is actually doing her project on the United States colored troops from Cincinnati. And so what we're hoping, and, the, you know, we've started to pull it a few places that we think we can get more information, is that part of the reason this fellowship is funded to find the things in our collection that are not getting attention or that we maybe don't know are there. And so um, she has a year and she's doing podcasts, a podcast series on that's, it. So um, we're, I'm so excited. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's, uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. When uh, items come into the collection, what's the process? What system does that go into? So, so someone just drops off a box and says, here are all these papers. Yeah, they're, they're supposed to contact us first. <laughs> um, but yes, um, so that all runs through Christine and Sarah. They are the people that take in the collections and organize the collections. I'm just the people that helps the public with the collections. So, But the process is that they bring them in. A decision is made how they will be organized. A lot of times they come in and they're already organized, so it's just make a finding aid and sort of deal with it. There is a an really huge backlog of manuscript collections that the archivists have really been making a lot of headway on lately. So, I have a comic book I wrote when I was 12. Would you all be interested in that? I can put it right there with Nicholas Longworth, yeah. His drawings are a lot better. Think about it in 100 years, though. People are like, oh, Cody Hefner. He was the vice president at the Museum Center. Look at this cool comic book he made. Oh, man, that would be disastrous for a lot of people. <laughs> Are librarians connected to other librarians? Like, what's what's the what's the fraternity like? Because I I do have to say, I got a letter from the president of the Alglaze County Public Library, <laughs> revoking my library card uh, a handful of years ago, because my brother checked out a book called Cry of the Kalahari, and lost it, and so it, it never went back. And I just kept getting letter after letter after letter saying, "These are the fines. These are the fines. Where's the book? Where's the book?" And then finally, a very apologetic letter saying we're sorry we have to revoke your your membership <laughs> and i don't know what stigma that carries like am i am i flagged in Duh. all in the our libraries know now? about you oh my god but if your brother checked it out why were you being flamed to Be- use your card so he was in college <laughs> at the time and apparently couldn't find it on campus and said check the library and i found it and i was a younger brother i was so happy to help him and i said i found it. i got it and i gave it to him and then just got lost oh. Under, under Everybody knows about you. There's an boxes. ALAAPB. <laughs> yeah. That's, 
That's this is. <laughs> no. I always wonder why the doors are locked when I try to go down the library. <laughs> that's but right. that's right. Yeah, it's it, just me. It, it is funny though because it always makes me laugh. Like I'll meet somebody and they'll be like, "What do you do?" I say, like, "I'm a librarian." Oh, do you know? And it's just some random librarian from somewhere. One time, someone did ask me that, and I was like, "Oh, I do know that person." <laughs> but um, my brains do talk, but generally just locally. Yeah. So you're probably okay. I don't know anybody from Oglays County, so but okay. now I know, so I'm gonna spread the word. Great. <laughs> I can I can never go back there, especially if you work. If you work for a public library, like county-wide, you're going to know who the problems are. And, <laughs> and so you you came from um, Hamilton County Public Library system. Yeah, I was a public library f- until this. How long How long were you there? What's, 20 what's years. Jill's backstory? 20 years. Wow. So, um, yeah, I was a public librarian for 20 years in Butler County and then in Hamilton County. But in all fairness... I had a library in my garage when I was like six where I would make the neighborhood kids sign out books on That's cards. awesome. So I guess it was destiny. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, I was a public librarian. That used to be the cool thing with, with the cards and the books. To figure, It was always cool to look and like, oh, this book's not been checked out for 12 years or 20 years or something like that. that that's gone now. Just like... In school, you used to get textbooks, and you'd have to write your name on you it. You had the book before. And, you, and it would be like, oh, I have this person's book. That's so exciting. Yeah. If you go to the Mercantile, I think you can still see when the last time the book was checked out. Really? Yeah, I think they still have the old school things in there. So you've, like, this was, has been your past since you were six. Yeah. And it was just a whole career change. I mean, the public to private, and it's it's a hard it's a hard jump to make. Like, once you're niched into there, it's really hard. And I will always be so thankful to Scott Gamfer for giving me a chance with this. Because I think I, you know, I was like, I can totally do this job. And my cover letter, I think, was like, please hire me, please. I'm a super history nerd, and I just want to come there and talk about Cincinnati history. And so, yeah. See, Scott Gamfer was, um, he used to be the director of the library. Was that his title? I thought he was more than that. Um Ruby Rogers, and I think Scott was for a while, and then he was also director of history collections, collections as well. Yeah. yeah, so anyone who knows Scott is is pulling their hair out right now because we just did him a disservice. But um, Scott Scott was always great because they say Scott, I you know, media has has this question they want to they want to know about this. Can you help? He's, he said, I'm not a historian, and then he would rattle off five or six anecdotes about that exact topic, and I said right. Scott. That's what they want to hear. They want to hear like the the juicy, interesting stuff. They don't. They can look like online, and right. you know, this is who they were. This is when they were born, and the, the very simple stuff. They want to know those humanizing details, those interesting facts. And he could just rattle those off, which is right. what you've been doing. You you've like that's what you glean when you're dealing with this material. Right. And my degree, my undergrad, is in English Lit. For heaven's sake, so. I'm certainly not a historian, but you learn things. And was there was there a book when you were a kid that you checked out from the library over and over? <laughs> Mrs. Basil E. Frank, like what is it? The Hidden Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweller. It's about two little kids that run away to a museum. So see, it all comes together. I've heard of that. I, I've book. seen that book. It's a great book. You should read it. Sometimes I still read it. That's amazing. <laughs> And you just checked it out over and over? Yeah. That's yeah. great. 
So it was all meant to be. Was there a love of reading or a, a focus on reading as you were growing up? Yeah, yeah. So my mom taught English, and so I think I, uh, but I always just liked to read and would read everything in front of me. So so if if someone is interested in, in researching something, if they're, they're working on a project, or they might just be curious to dive into one of your yeah. rabbit holes, what's, how do they go about it? So... The easiest way is probably to shoot us an email at library at org, or you can also call us at 513-287-7030. We are also in the library, um, 12 to 4, Thursdays and Fridays, um, open door. Anybody can come in. Uh, we're trying to expand those hours a little bit. But if you if you want to make an appointment, we, we're also there on other days. It's just sometimes we bounce between buildings. Do people... They're... they're interacting with real historic documents. Do they have to wear gloves? Or what are the safety precautions for the materials? So right now, um, you do not have to wear gloves if you're using the manuscripts. There's kind of been a a turn toward the gloves are more likely to tear something. Um, However, if you're using photos, you'll need to wear gloves. And just in the library, you can only have pencils, papers, and electronics, no bags, no drinks, no food, that sort of thing. But we're pretty easy going. It's a really fun experience. I've been in the library, uh, and I've been in there as groups are researching something or, or dealing with the document. It's really fun to watch that mm-hmm. discovery process for people because uh, everyone's looking for something. Hey, I'm researching this. What do you have on it? Because in their mind, they have a question that they're trying to answer and a lot of times, they have what they hope the answer is going to be. And as they're exploring it, that changes completely. Mm-hmm. And it's such a fun process to watch. And going back to the to the grand scheme and the big picture of Cincinnati Museum Center, it is built on those almost 200 years of the history library and archives and a historical collection that came from it. But it's still... Like it, it feels like this blast from the past, but it is still applicable. It is still such an active part of what we do. It it really is, and it sometimes it feels like I think I can take almost anything in this country now and connect it back to something in Cincinnati. I'll be doing something, and I'll be like, oh wait, but that person lived in Cincinnati, or this happened, or something like that. One of a researcher who's okay, my favorite, but he's in fairly often is on the board of the observatory. And um, so he's been in, we have some, we have a lot of crossover with the observatory. Um, and so we partner with other Cincinnati organizations, but also um, one of the reporters from the Inquirer who's been working on like all the changes that are coming to downtown. She comes in and she's like, okay, what do you have about this neighborhood at this time and things? And so everything that was old is new or vice versa. And, and Cincinnati's such a I don't know. I mean, when you look at the West End, I think we all know it was wiped out. And then, you know, now they're trying to bring it back. And it, and so in order to bring it back, people are looking at what was it like before. And it's just, I don't know. I it, love my job. It's so fun to be that place to, to be that go-to for people right. who have that question. The question I ask everyone is if you could change roles with someone for a day, who would it be in the organization? What would the role be? Bob Genheimer. 
because I want to play in the archaeology collections. Do you want to play in the archaeology collections or do you want to get out and dig in the dirt? That too. Yeah. All of the above. What what is it about the archaeology collections that interests you? I don't I don't know. I just there's so much there to learn, and um, especially, uh, you know, you'll go in the room where the collections are, and it's like, I don't know, there's something there. I want to learn about that and that and that and that. And, I mean, it's that way in my current job, but um, just more so because this collection it is so much broader. And I just, I don't know, plus the digging in the dirt sounds fun. I, Bob would be a good one. Yeah, it's, for me at least, it's hard to walk into any collection space and not just be amazed or just curious and you just you just want to poke around and it's a a lot of times you don't know what you're looking at like i wonder what that is but then you see something and you say oh i know this little kernel about this thing in front of me and you feel like you just feel this wave wash over you that it's like something that you've only read about or you've only heard about or have this small inkling about and there it is right in front of you Mm -hmm. and we have three million opportunities for <laughs> right. that to happen right. for people in the collections. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jill, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for Kate. thanks for talking with us. Hopefully, people are tuned into the fact that we have a history library in the building. You're not checking out books. You're checking out moments of history, tangible moments of history at your fingertips. Yeah. Where else do you get this opportunity? It's pretty cool. People should come and see us. That's not bad. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you like what you heard, please rate and subscribe. But more importantly, come see for yourself. Visit sensimuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. And if you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at sensimuseum.org. Thanks for listening.